Section four, part one of Old Pioneers by Willa Cather. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reading by Matt Perard. Part one, section four. For the first three years after John Bergson's death, the affairs of his family prospered. Then came the hard times that brought everyone on the divide to the brink of despair. Three years of drought and failure, the last struggle of a wild soil against the encroaching plowshare. The first of these fruitless summers the Bergson boys bore courageously. The failure of the corn crop made labor cheap. Lou and Oscar hired two men and put in bigger crops than ever before. They lost everything they spent. The whole country was discouraged. Farmers who were already in debt had to give up their land. A few foreclosures demoralized the county. The settlers sat about on the wooden sidewalks in the little town and told each other that the country was never meant for men to live in. The thing to do was to get back to Iowa, to Illinois, to any place that had been proved habitable. The Bergson boys certainly would have been happier with their Uncle Otto in the bakery shop in Chicago. Like most of their neighbors, they were meant to follow in paths already marked out for them, not to break trails in a new country. A steady job, a few holidays, nothing to think about, and they would have been very happy. It was no fault of theirs that they had been dragged into the wilderness when they were little boys. A pioneer should have imagination, should be able to enjoy the idea of things more than the things themselves. The second of these barren summers was passing. One September afternoon, Alexandra had gone over to the garden across the draw to dig sweet potatoes. They had been thriving upon the weather that was fatal to everything else. But when Carl Lindstrom came up the garden rows to find her, she was not working. She was standing lost in thought, leaning upon her pitchfork, her sunbonnet lying beside her on the ground. The dry garden patch smelled of drying vines and was strewn with yellow seed cucumbers and pumpkins and citrons. At one end, near the rhubarb, grew feathery asparagus with red berries. Down the middle of the garden was a row of gooseberry and currant bushes. A few tough zinnias and marigolds and a row of scarlet sage bore witness to the buckets of water that Mrs. Bergson had carried there after sundown against the prohibition of her sons. Carl came quietly and slowly up, up the garden path, looking intently at Alexandra. She did not hear him. She was standing perfectly still, with that serious ease so characteristic of her. Her thick, reddish braids, twisted about her head, fairly burned in the sunlight. The air was cool enough to make the warm sun pleasant on one's back and shoulders, and so clear that the eye could follow a hawk up and up into the blazing blue depths of the sky. Even Carl, never a very cheerful boy, and considerably darkened by these last two bitter years, loved the country on days like this, felt something strong and young and wild come out of it that laughed at care. Alexandra, he said as he approached her, I want to talk to you. Let's sit down by the gooseberry bushes. He picked up her sack of potatoes, and they crossed the garden. "'Boys gone to town?' he asked as he sank down on the warm, sun-baked earth. "'Well, we have made up our minds at last, Alexandra. We are really going away.' She looked at him as if she were a little frightened. 
Really, Carl? Is it settled? Yes. Father has learned from St. Louis, and they will give him back his old job in the cigar factory. He must be there by the first of November. They are taking on new men, then. We will sell the place for whatever we can get, and auction the stock. We haven't enough to ship. I am going to learn engraving with a German engraver there, and then try to get work in Chicago. Alexandra's hands dropped in her lap. Her eyes became dreamy and filled with tears. Carl's sensitive lower lip trembled. He scratched in the soft earth beside him with a stick. That's all I hate about it, Alexandra, he said slowly. You've stood by us through so much and helped father out so many times, and now it seems as if we were running off and leaving you to face the worst of it. But it isn't as if we could really ever be of any help to you. We are only one more drag, one more thing you look out for and feel responsible for. Father was never meant for a farmer, you know that. And I hate it. We'd only get in deeper and deeper. Yes, yes, Carl, I know. You are wasting your life here. You are able to do much better things. You are nearly nineteen now, and I wouldn't have you stay. I've always hoped you would get away. But I can't help feeling scared when I think how I will miss you, more than you will ever know. She brushed the tears from her cheeks, not trying to hide them. But, Alexandra, he said sadly and wistfully, I've never been any real help to you, beyond sometimes trying to keep the boys in a good humor. Alexandra smiled and shook her head. Oh, it's not that, nothing like that. It's by understanding me and the boys and mother that you've helped me. I expect that is the only way one person ever really can help another. I think you are about the only one that ever helped me. Somehow it will take more courage to bear your going than everything that has happened before. Carl looked at the ground. You see, we've all depended so on you, he said, even father. He makes me laugh. When anything comes up, he always says, I wonder what the Bergsons are going to do about that. I guess I'll go and ask her. I'll never forget that time when we first came here and our horse had the colic, and I ran over to your place. Your father was away, and you came home with me and showed father how to let the wind out of the horse. You were only a little girl then, but you knew ever so much more about farm work than poor father. You remember how homesick I used to get, and what long talks we used to have coming from school? We've some way always felt alike about things. Yes, that's it. We've liked the same things, and we've liked them together, without anybody else knowing. And we've had good times, hunting for Christmas trees and going for ducks and making a plum wine together every year. We've never, either of us, had any other close friend, and now... And now, Alexandra wiped her eyes with the corner of her apron, and now I must remember that you are going where you will have many friends and will find the work you were meant to do. But you'll write to me, Carl. That will mean a great deal to me here. I'll write as long as I live, cried the boy impetuously, and I'll be working for you as much as for myself, Alexandra. I want to do something you'll like and be proud of. I'm a fool here, but I know I can do something. 
He sat up and frowned at the red grass. Alexandra sighed. How discouraged the boys will be when they hear. They always come home from town discouraged anyway. So many people are trying to leave the country, and they talk to our boys and make them low-spirited. I'm afraid they are beginning to feel hard toward me because I won't listen to any talk about going. Sometimes I feel like I'm getting tired of standing up for this country. I won't tell the boys yet, if you'd rather not. Oh, I'll tell them myself tonight, when they come home. They'll be talking wild anyway, and no good comes of keeping bad news. It's all harder on them than it is on me. Lou wants to get married, poor boy, and he can't until times are better. See, there goes the sun, Carl. I must be getting back. Mother will want her potatoes. It's chilly already, the moment the light goes. Alexandra rose and looked about. A golden afterglow throbbed in the west, but the country already looked empty and mournful. A dark, moving mass came over the western hill. The lee boy was bringing in the herd from the other half-section. Emil ran from the windmill to open the corral gate. From the log-house, on the little rise across the draw, the smoke was curling. The cattle lowed and bellowed. In the sky, the pale half-moon was slowly silvering. Alexandra and Carl walked together down the potato rows. "'I have to keep telling myself what is going to happen,' she said softly. "'Since you have been here ten years now, I have never really been lonely. But I can remember what it was like before. Now I shall have nobody but Emil. But he is my boy, and he is tender-hearted.' That night, when the boys were called to supper, they sat down moodily. They had worn their coats to town, but they ate in their striped shirts and suspenders. They were grown men now, and, as Alexandra said, for the last years they had been growing more and more like themselves. Lou was still the slighter of the two, the quicker and more intelligent, but apt to go off at half-cock. He had lively blue eyes, a thin, fair skin, always burned red to the neckband of his shirt in summer stiff yellow hair that would not lie down on his head, and a bristly little yellow mustache, of which he was very proud. Oscar could not grow a mustache. His pale face was as bare as an egg, and his white eyebrows gave it an empty look. He was a man of powerful body and unusual endurance, the sort of man you could attach to a corn-sheller, as you would an engine. He would turn it all day, without hurrying, without slowing down. But he was indolent of mind, as he was unsparing of his body. His love of routine amounted to a vice. He worked like an insect, always doing the same thing over in the same way, regardless of whether it was best or no. He felt that there was a sovereign virtue in mere bodily toil, and he rather liked to do things in the hardest way. If a field had once been in corn, he couldn't bear to put it into wheat. He liked to begin his corn-planting at the same time every year, whether the season were backward or forward. He seemed to feel that by his own irreproachable regularity he would clear himself of blame and, re and reprove the weather. When the wheat crop failed, he threshed the straw at a dead loss to demonstrate how little grain there was, and thus prove his case against Providence. Lou, on the other hand, was fussy and flighty, 
always planned to get through two days' work in one, and often got only the least important things done. He liked to keep the place up, but he never got round to doing odd jobs until he had to neglect more pressing work to attend to them. In the middle of the wheat harvest, when the grain was overripe and every hand was needed, he would stop to mend fences or to patch the harness, then dash down to the field and overwork and be laid up in bed for a week. The two boys balanced each other, and they pulled well together. They had been good friends since they were children. One seldom went anywhere, even to town, without the other. Tonight, after they sat down to supper, Oscar kept looking at Lou as if he expected him to say something and lou blinked his eyes and frowned at his plate it was alexandra herself who at last opened the discussion the lindstroms she said calmly as she put another plate of hot biscuit on the table are going back to st louis the old man is going to work in the cigar factory again at this lou plunged in you see alexandra everybody who can crawl out is going away there's no use of us trying to stick it out just to be stubborn. There's something in knowing when to quit. Where do you want to go, Lou? Any place where things will grow, said Oscar grimly. Lou reached for a potato. Chris Arnson has traded his half-section for a place down on the river. Who did he trade with? Charlie Fuller, in town. Fuller, the real estate man? You see, Lou, that Fuller has a head on him. He's buying and trading for every bit of land he can get up here. It'll make him a rich man some day. He's rich now. That's why he can take a chance. Why can't he? We'll live longer than he will. Some day the land itself will be worth more than all we can ever raise on it. Lou laughed. It could be worth that and still not be worth much. Why, Alexandra, you don't know what you're talking about. Our place wouldn't bring now what it would six years ago. The fellows that settled up here just made a mistake. Now they're beginning to see this highland wasn't never meant to grow nothing on, and everybody who ain't fixed to graze cattle is trying to crawl out. It's too high to farm up here. All the Americans are skinning out. That man Percy Adams, north of town, told me that he was going to let Fuller take his land and stuff for $400 and a ticket to Chicago. There's Fuller again! Alexandra exclaimed. I wish that man would take me for a partner. He's feathering his nest. If only poor people could learn a little from rich people. But all these fellows who are running off are bad farmers, like poor Mr. Lindstrom. They couldn't get ahead even in good years, and they all got into debt while father was getting out. I think we ought to hold on as long as we can on father's account. He was so set on keeping this land. He must have seen harder times than this here. How was it in the early days, mother? Mrs. Bergson was weeping quietly. These family discussions always depressed her and made her remember all that she had been torn away from. I don't see why the boys are always talking on about going away, she said, wiping her eyes. I don't want to move again. Out to some raw place maybe, where we'd be worse off than we are here, and all to do over again. I won't move. If the rest of you go, I will ask some of the neighbors to take me in, and stay and be buried by father. I'm not going to leave him by himself on the prairie, for cattle to run over. She began to cry more bitterly. The boys looked angry. Alexandra put a soothing hand on her mother's shoulder. 
There's no question of that, mother. You don't have to go if you don't want to. A third of the place belongs to you, by American law, and we can't sell without your consent. We only want you to advise us. How did it used to be when you and father first came? Was it really as bad as this, or not? Oh, worse, much worse, moaned Mrs. Bergson. Drought, chinks bugs, hail, everything. My garden all cut to pieces like sauerkraut. No grapes on the creek, no nothing. The people all live just like coyotes. Oscar got up and tramped out of the kitchen. Lou followed him. They felt that Alexandra had taken an unfair advantage in turning their mother loose on them. The next morning they were silent and reserved. They did not offer to take the women to church, but went down to the barn immediately after breakfast, and stayed there all day. When Carl Lindstrom came over in the afternoon, Alexandra winked to him and pointed toward the barn. He understood her, and went down to play cards with the boys. They believed that a very wicked thing to do on Sunday, and it relieved their feelings. Alexandra stayed in the house. On Sunday afternoon, Mrs. Bergson always took a nap, and Alexandra read. During the week, she read only the newspaper, but on Sunday, and in the long evenings of winter, she read a good deal, read a few things over a great many times. She knew long portions of the Frithoff saga by heart, and like most Swedes who read it all, she was fond of Longfellow's verse the ballads, and the golden legend, and the Spanish student. Today she sat in the wooden rocking chair with the Swedish Bible open on her knees, but she was not reading. She was looking thoughtfully away at the point where the upland road disappeared over the rim of the prairie. Her body was in an attitude of perfect repose, such as it was apt to take when she was thinking earnestly. Her mind was slow, truthful, steadfast. She had not the least spark of cleverness. All afternoon, the sitting-room was full of quiet and sunlight. Emile was making rabbit traps in the kitchen shed. The hens were clucking and scratching brown holes in the flower-beds, and the wind was teasing the prince's feather by the door. That evening, Carl came in with the boys to supper. Emile, said Alexandra, when they were all seated at the table, how would you like to go travelling because i am going to take a trip and you can go with me if you want to the boys looked up in amazement they were always afraid of alexandra's schemes carl was interested i've been thinking boys she went on that maybe i am too set against making a change i'm going to take brigham and the buckboard to-morrow and drive down to the river country and spend a few days looking over what they've got down there if i find anything good you boys can go down and make a trade nobody down there will trade for anything up here said oscar gloomily that's just what i want to find out maybe they are just as discontented down there as we are up here things away from home often look better than they are you know what your Hans Andersen books says, Carl, about the Swedes liking to buy Danish bread and the Danes liking to buy Swedish bread, because people always think the bread of another country is better than their own. Anyway, I've heard so much about the river farms, I won't be satisfied till I've seen for myself. Lou fidgeted. Look out! Don't agree to anything! Don't let them fool you! Lou was apt to be fooled himself. 
he had not yet learned to keep away from the shell game wagons that followed the circus. After supper, Lou put on a necktie and went across the fields to court Annie Lee, and Carl and Oscar sat down to a game of checkers, while Alexandra read the Swiss family Robinson aloud to her mother and Emil. It was not long before the two boys at the table neglected their game to listen. They were all big children together, and they found the adventures of the family in the treehouse so absorbing that they gave them their undivided attention. End of Part 1, Section 4